Welcome to the Westside Podcast. So much of the story has revolved around the Springbok Tour of 1981, of course being set in 1981, it's hard to avoid, but it's, you know, it's one of the central themes. And oh my word, what a time it was, if you lived through that and uh, remember it. It was a spooky time, actually, in this country. I'd never experienced anything quite like it. One of the central figures in the protest movement was John Minto. He was both lionised and probably one of the most hated faces in the country as well, if you were pro-tour. John Minto, to join us to tell us his perspective about 1981. Hi, John. How are you? Oh, kia Grandma. I'm really well, thanks. Really well. It was a very, very weird time, wasn't it? Well, it was looking back. You know, it was a time when New Zealand was um, deeply and bitterly split over an issue of... of uh, you know, where, where sport and racism uh, crossed over. It kind of touched a nerve for everybody um, on both those issues. And as I say, very deep and very bitter divisions occurred. Yeah, and also because it touched on rugby, it was like a sacred theme was being attacked as well. Yeah, it was. And I think um, looking at it in perspective, that was the reason that the New Zealand anti-apartheid movement had had the opportunity to develop so much pressure on the South African regime. And it was because the South Africans had their most prized international relations, if you like, were rugby matches against the All Blacks. And so here was this tiny little country in the South Pacific, which was able to put enormous pressure on South Africa through um, denying them the opportunity to play with the with the All Blacks, or at least putting so much pressure on that it meant um, that these tours eventually became unsustainable. How did you grow a social conscience? Oh, well, I did through um, growing up in Dunedin in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, my parents were both um, very, you know, socially minded, um, and I was also part of the Catholic Church, which was at that time... Very had a very strong mandate for social justice. Um, there was, it was the time of the Second Vatican Council. For anyone who, who remembers that, uh, John Paul XXIII was um, was elected Pope in 1960, and um, he called the Second Vatican Council together. And the Church made this big commitment to the poor and the oppressed around the world, and so that was reflected in it was reflected in um, well, certainly within our family and, and within our local church circle. So it became sort of part of the wallpaper of me growing up, really. And, you know, you sort of took it for granted that we should, um, you know, stand up for the poor and the oppressed around the world. And so that's that's where I got it from. What were you doing before 81? Were you protesting for, like, that 76 tour? And- my, my own personal involvement started in 19... 19- 1975, when I uh, went to a public meeting in Napier, and then 1976, I was involved in the campaign, but I, I was in Napier at that time. Then I gradu- I shifted to Auckland to go to Teachers College, and then gradually got more involved in things, and um, before I knew it, I was a secretary and then a spokesperson for the for the anti-apartheid movement in Auckland. What happened to uh, your brothers and sisters in arms at the time that we uh, were quite familiar with, that happened to, I haven't heard from? What happened to Trevor Richards? He did a good impersonation of Karl Marx. <laughs> well, he had that. In, well, he still has that enormous, uh, uh, enormous uh, uh, moustache, which um, someone said once that uh, he resembled a rat looking through a straw broom. <laughs> but um, uh, but no, Trevor's uh, Trevor's returning to New Zealand shortly. Actually, he's been overseas. He's been over in 
in Paris for um, probably 25 years, I think, living there, and um, he's moving back to back to New Zealand shortly. So, yeah, he was very much, um, you know, one of those. He was the, you know, the figurehead from 1969 when Hart started. So right through the right through the 1970s, he was the main face of the of the anti-apartheid movement in New Zealand, and he copped a hell of a lot of flack for that. But yep. Um, and the 1981 tour, I was uh, when that arrived. I, I became the sort of the main spokesperson for for Hart and for the for the anti-tour movement. So yeah, he sort of passed the baton to me at a difficult time. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you're human. Um, it can't have been nice to be so hated. You, I mean, people mm. hated your guts because you were mucking with our beautiful sacred rugby, and you wanted it stopped. Yeah, that's true, and. Uh, New Zealand was bitterly divided, and in, in the big centres, you had um, most people were uh, the majority, not not you know overwhelming, but there was a majority of people opposed to the tour. So moving around in the big cities, it was you kind of felt that that um, uh, that you were on sort of safe ground. But I remember moving uh, going down once to Blenheim and talk uh, on a talkback radio show in Blenheim, uh, which went for an hour. And the first fourteen calls were absolutely rabidly pro-tour and, and hated my guts. And the fifth, the, the final call that came through said, oh, look, you know, I've been listening to these calls and, you know, this is what Blenheim's like, John. This is, you know, this is just, this is the way, the way people are down here. It's a terrible conservative town. But in fact, um, you know, most of those people in the meantime would have changed their minds. But at the time, yeah, it was, um, it was a bit scary at times. Okay. Did it, what happened, anything personal that, because people would have loved to have had a lash at you. Oh, yeah, I did. We did get, um, I, I had death threats and we got a lot of stuff through the mail, which was pretty uh, pretty filthy, racist um, and threatening and uh, what have you. And a few feces sent through the mail as well. Yeah. Um, and I had, a, I mean, I, I did get phone calls and death threats over the phone. Um but people said to me, look, you're desperate over the phone. You don't worry about it because that's somebody just sounding off. The, the real uh, ones you worry about are the people who don't call you but are determined to do it. But I certainly was attacked. I did get injured during the tour um, several times from, from people who were supportive of, of, of the tour. But I never had any serious. Uh, I got, got three or four stitches in Hamilton. But um, aside from that, I was fine. Okay. You were a person... Uh, whom I'm sure the authorities were interested in because they were wanting to plan for protests and it was uh, the authoritarian government of Robert Muldoon. I'm sure they didn't like the cut of your jib. Did the cops give you special attention? Yes, they did. The the police had um, infiltrated the the anti-tour movement in all the main centres and as well as that, the SIS also had people um, infiltrating uh, at, at a really high level within the anti-tour movement. And um, so yeah, during the tour, I mean, Muldoon used that. He, he produced a, a report trying to undermine support for the anti-tour movement um, reasonably early in the, in the tour itself. And he released a list of people. I can't remember. There was a, um, a dozen or 15 people who he said were radicals or subversive. So it was a, it was an attack on the leadership of the anti-tour movement. We, uh, they had information that, that the SIS had gleaned from different meetings and they put it together and tried to say that we were, that we were really just anti-establishment rather than being principled activists, which we were. Mm. And the funny thing was, you know, that backfired on him because people didn't buy his argument. 
people didn't buy it. And within a couple of days, I mean, it was so obviously an attempt to smear the movement that it, it actually never went anywhere. Um, one one person who was named there actually took a took a legal case and and, and won it against the against the state for for claims that they had made about him, um, which were profoundly untrue, and um, he got a, a substantial payout for that. Were you did you spot the moles, or was it a surprise to find out later? Uh, uh, later, well, some of them we didn't, and uh, I know the, the group in Wellington had um, a woman who had infiltrated their movement, and nobody knew until she appeared on the front page of the Herald as a young police constable just starting out in in Auckland, and everybody gasped and could <laughs> because she'd been wow. very much part of organ- helping to organise things in 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 Wellington. Um, in Auckland, we did we did. Um, Later in the tour, we recognised one person who was an SIS spy and we were able to to effectively exclude that person from any any sort of key roles in decision-making or eavesdropping in meetings and that kind of thing. Did you have sympathy at all for the police on the front line who I suppose were doing their job? Well, yeah, I have to say, yes, we did. There were a lot of police who clearly were... They just didn't want to be there. They didn't support the tour. They were embarrassed about the antics of the riot squads. Uh, they're just good, good, decent Kiwi cops, you know, who were who didn't join didn't join the police force to to enforce a a tour like this. And I think, um, yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, so the short answer is yes. Okay, Red Squad was a bit different though. Uh, there were some pretty motivated police out there as well. They were, the Red Squad and the Blue Squad were different because they were volunteers um, and they were taken from the team policing units in Auckland and Wellington. The Red Squad was the team policing units in Auckland. The Blue Squad was team policing units in Wellington and that was at a time when the the police had a very macho um, kind of culture which was designed to... Um, to sort of say we're the, we're the, we are we are the top gang in New Zealand, man, and you don't mess with us. And so these were young volunteers, and so they were all supportive of, of the tour. And when the Red Squad and Blue Squad were going around, they would mix informally with the Springboks. They even had some some little mock rugby games, you know, some touch rugby games with the Springboks. So they were very much um, supportive of the tour, and they regarded us as the scum of the earth. And they, you know, they took out. In a very unprofessional way, they, they took out their their anger and frustrations against um, people who supported the tour on, on numerous occasions. I'm not going to say that we weren't provocative because no. we were. We, yeah. we were deliberately trying to stop games. We were we were taking civil disobedience action. We were breaking the law. But at the same time, I think the police response was very deep and personal and violent and and bloody. Yeah. There was a quasi-military organisation organization behind a lot of the protests. And, you know, those volunteers, are, you'd get kitted up for action if you were wanted to be at the front. Yeah, you did. And we did encourage people to do that because we, we knew we were going into a situation where, you know, we were being provocative. We were blocking roads. We were we were trying to stop rugby fans getting getting to games. So we, we also knew that the, um, you know, that we were often confronting we would be in a situation where we would be confronted by by the, by the police in, in a standoff or whatever. And yeah. after the police had attacked the protest in Molesworth Street, um, which was about the third game of, of the tour, if you look at the photos before and after, you find 
the photos before, there's very few people wearing helmets or anything like that. But after, there's just a blossoming. Yeah. Everybody was, well, we're wearing helmets, we're wearing chest protectors. Um, and in Auckland, there was a little, almost like a little factory which was producing chest protectors for people. Um, and, uh, you know, you wore, you wore newspapers rolled up up your sleeves to protect your, you know, your, like your shoulders and your elbows as much as possible, that sort of thing. So, yeah, people did get kitted up and, and um, we never armed ourselves, but we were prepared to prepared for a, for a bashing if the police were good, were going to deliver it, and they certainly did on many occasions. Well, I remember people basically dismantling a fence just across from my flat on Marlborough Street and using the yeah. uh, using the pails as uh, as weapons. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I think you know if I if I look back, I'd say that. Um, the, the anti-tour movement had a policy of non-violent direct action. We said we're not, there'll be no violence against people, but we we and we we felt very neutral, I guess, about violence against property. And so, when the fence was pulled down in Hamilton or damage was done to grounds, we we were um, happy to accept that as part of our protest. But no violence against people—that was our our motto. And I think for the for the duration of the tour, up and probably up until the last test, I think we kept to that. We kept to that really well. We had a very disciplined um, approach, yeah. but I think the tension had built up over over eight weeks. And and in that last game, the third test in Auckland, the final game, there was a, there was significant violence from our from our people, and it was it was that build up, as I say, that enormous build up of tension. And probably looking back, it was it was inevitable that that was going to happen. I think that if the tour had gone one more week, we could have seen people actually killed. Yeah, I was going to say. Nobody died. It wasn't beer and skittles, but are you surprised that nobody, no, nobody died? died? I think one person got very close to death um, after the test. They were hit in the in the, the their eye socket was smashed by a police baton, and they were they were in in, in hospital. And um, that was probably the closest we got with massive internal bleeding, and that was the closest we had to somebody being killed. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, if if it had gone on another week, I think that might have been a different story. Did you know? Mr. Marks in the plane. What's his yeah. name? Marks Jones. Marks yeah. Jones, yep. Wonderful guy. Did yeah. you know that he was getting in that plane that day? Yes, we did. He um, he had tried the previous week. Um, he came to, to speak to us. He spoke to me um, about what his intentions were to make sure that we were supportive of, of an action like that because a lot of people felt this should be a mass movement and we didn't want people doing individual things. And I said to him, well, it's all part of... There's little outbreaks of people doing what they could wherever they could, and um, he was if he could organise something like that, flower bombing um, the the game that would be great. There'd already been a flower bombing of a team in, at Lower Hutt in 1976, I think it was, when the spring when the uh, South African softball team was over here playing. So he he certainly had our blessing to to do it, um, and uh, we were delighted when he did. It's one of the most amazing sights I think I've ever experienced. When I think think back on it, it was I was in um, just off Bond Street on Simon on uh, Sandringham Road and saw the plane yep. go over and, and what the hell is this? And it just did, did the wing wiggle. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, the two of them in the plane. Um, yeah. yeah, I think they're they're real they're real Kiwi heroes of mine. Uh, both of them, and they're they're both living in Auckland, and they're you know they're yeah. great guys. All right. They were really an, an inspiration to, and I have to say this, you know, they were an inspiration to us 
in, in, in Auckland. And whenever they flew over the park, everybody on the barricades would cheer like hell. Yeah. But in fact, there were people all excuse me, there were people all around the world who were cheering at the same time. And whenever we had visitors come over from South Africa or from from other parts of the world, they always wanted to meet the pilot of, of the plane. And we'd always um, take them around to meet Marks because it was an inspiration to them as well, yeah. to black South Africans um, in the struggle in South Africa. This was amazing, this plane flying over, dropping flower bombs on a Springbok game. People were just absolutely you know, elated by it and uh, given inspiration by it. So, yeah, so it's much beyond New Zealand. Did it concern you at all that people joined the anti-tour movement for a wide variety of reasons? It didn't. Um, I know a lot of people have said they saw the gangs there and the gangs shouldn't have been there. They should, you know, they were just there to have a go at the cops. But in fact, the gangs were, there were gang members there and they were there on for a, for a solidarity protest with black South Africans. I'd been invited to speak to some of the gangs, the, the King Cobras in Auckland, and I'd, I'd spoken to them, gone through the whole issue of the apartheid system. This is months before the tour. And they came out in large numbers. They bought their own banners, you know, KC's against the tour, um, Black Power against the tour, all of that. And they were, they were there for the right reasons. And I know people said they were just there a lot of people thought they were just there for a go at the cops. They weren't. Now, many of them actually kept right away from the, from the, from the front lines because they didn't want to, to distract attention from, you know, to sort of to paint this picture of, um, you know, um, gangs versus the cops. It was the anti-tour movement versus apartheid. And, that's you know, they, they kept away from the front lines for that reason. As far as public perception goes, the other end is the sight of someone like, Carl Stead in the middle of the stadium, uh, in the middle of the field at Waikato. Yes, he was. He was in the middle of the field in Waikato. He, he was on. I uh, was on all the protests, Carl, and um, a fantastic person, um, a very deeply principled person in terms of, um, you know, in terms of injustice and human rights. And um, yeah, he's uh, he, he was just one of those one of those uh, pivotal figures within yeah. the anti-tour movement. Yeah, and it did send a big message, I think, to a lot of people. These aren't just troublemakers. When you see people like Carl Stead and others like him, uh, it mm. did change, oh, you know, the, the way people thought about him. it. Right? I think it did. Yeah, yeah no, it, ab- it absolutely did. It kind of made um, people who were opposed to tour, it gave them a bit more... Um, I guess a bit more courage to come out themselves on yeah, protests, yeah. and um, yeah, it did it. It was genuinely a, a wide cross section of New Zealand that were opposed to the to the to the to the tour. And if I give a little example, you know, um, in even the deepest um, sort of most fervent rugby country of, of Taranaki in a little town called Eltham, um, they had a march against the tour, and there were twelve people on the march. And people came out of their hotels, came out of the out of the shopping centre. This was on Friday night to abuse them as they went down the street. You know, mm. they were they got the most a torrent of abuse as they marched down the street. And when they turned around and came back, they marched back. There were twenty of them. So people had seen the you know the, the courage of these locals, um, you know, standing up against the tour against this. This what was really sort of a, a very much a strong sort of negative rugby culture 
other people joined joined them on the way back. So yeah, and that was I mean that was real courage in those areas. I mean we never had to face that in the big centres um, because we felt we were sort of we we were the majority and we were it was sort of normalised. But in those small centres, that's where people people who stood up got a really hard time. But they're the real heroes of the tour in lots of ways. Yeah. John Minto, thanks so much for reflecting on this. I know it won't have been uh, the first time you've been asked these sort mm-hmm. of questions, but I really do appreciate you giving us your your point of view from someone who was so yeah. pivotal at that time. So thanks very much. Yeah, no, thank you very much.